welcome to the History of Christianity podcast. Once again, I'm sitting across from the wise, veritable <laughs> Sebastian Strotter. Um, and we're going we're gonna to continue our discussion of early Christian history. Um, last week, um, we basically did a big, big uh, bird's eye picture of uh, the history that leads up to um, the birth of Christ. And now we're going to talk about um, Christ's birth, his ministry, his death, um, and a little bit about his resurrection as well. Um, and then uh, next week we're going to talk about um, uh, what happens after Christ dies. Um, but this week we're just going to talk a little bit, uh, and this is just a very uh, summarized overview. Um, I want to stress that. I mean, obviously, as Christians, we feel like you can never completely mine the depths of, of Jesus. But uh, we want to lay the historical groundwork for what's going to come afterward, and you can't do that without talking about Jesus and why he was so significant. Um, so, yeah, do you have anything before we dive into the to the history? You know, you called me wise, and so I'm sort of speechless here. Ah, well, you know, uh, you know, it's easy to sound wise when you're not saying anything. <laughs> Well, you know, you, you, you've said plenty of things before. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I like to start every conversation out with a compliment. When Thank more you. flies with honey than vinegar or something like that. Something like that. So you're a fly also, Sebastian. Oh, well, okay. Remember well, that. <laughs> now you're burning up. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay, so Jesus, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. So, uh, you know, people of, uh, of faith, Christians, we will often refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ or the Messiah. Um, uh, but uh, a lot of the time when we're, when we're talking about the historical Jesus, uh, we might say Jesus of Nazareth just to be a little bit more specific and kind of take some of the uh, religious language out of it if we're trying to be historical about it. Um, but make no mistake, for Christians, he is the Christ, he is the Messiah. Um, and uh, many people, many, and it's this is not just a, uh, something that Christians are projecting back onto him. Many of his uh, contemporaries and peers also felt that he was the Messiah and the Christ. Um but he is, uh, from a historical standpoint, the founder of what we would today call broadly Christianity, right? And and I'm talking about when I say Christianity, and also in the name of this podcast, when I talk about uh, the history of Christianity, uh, I'm talking about it in its most broad sense, just people who claim to be Jesus followers um, in one way or another, Um so uh, Jesus uh, founds this whole new movement. Um, as we, we talked uh, last week, we got up to about the turn of the first century. Jesus is born, um, nobody really knows for sure the exact date, but uh, a good guess, a good estimate would be around 4 B.C., uh, seems like probably the most likely year. Um, now, uh, isn't that interesting, though, that uh, they date his birth for BC, yeah, before Christ, so uh, Christ came before Christ. <laughs> yeah, it's a little weird. The and I am not deep enough into this history to be able to explain in detail how that happened. All I can tell you is that uh, the 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 time the time calculations got off by a few years somewhere um, when uh, we went back and tried to reconfigure our calendars from the birth of Christ. Mm -hmm. But yeah, in all likelihood, Jesus was actually born. Uh, before Christ, quote unquote, right. uh, uh, or before AD, Anno Domini years. 
Um, he was born in uh, probably 4 BC. We don't know the exact date, um, but we do get an account in uh, the Gospel of Matthew uh, of this event called the Massacre of the Innocents, um, where Herod the Great mm-hmm. um, orders the slaughter of uh, male uh, children under the age of two in, in Judea. Um and we know that that couldn't have happened later than 2 BC because uh, Herod the Great died in 2 BC. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is something that happened at the end of Herod's reign. Um, so most scholars will date the birth of Jesus to around 4 BC. Um, and they think that this event, um, the massacre of the innocents, uh, happened sometime shortly thereafter. And mm-hmm. then also we get an account of Jesus and his family fleeing into Egypt for a, a short time and then coming back after Herod is is dead. Right. Um, <clears throat> okay, so, um, and again, we don't know the exact date of his birth. Uh, uh, it could, but we, because of the, uh, the massacre of the innocents and, you know, Herod dying in 2 BC, it's, it's very unlikely that he was born later than 4 BC. It's mm-hmm. possible he could have been born a few years earlier. But um, 4 BC seems like the most likely date. Um, but then we don't have a ton of information about Jesus until he's around 30 years old in the Gospels. Um, so if Jesus is born in 4 BC, uh, if he by the time he's around 30, that'd be around 26 AD. Um, and Jesus's ministry begins or is proclaimed rather by John the Baptist. Uh, and John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. Um, John the Baptist calls himself Jesus's uh, forerunner. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Jesus begins his ministry in which he travels um, uh, particularly around Galilee um, and uh, preaches, teaches, heals, um, and he gathers many disciples. And of those disciples, uh, there's an inner circle of 12 that come to be called the apostles, right? They come to be called the apostles, um, and I believe the if you trace the, the meaning of, the, of that word, it, the one sent out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they will, uh, after Jesus' death, be the ones who are sent out to spread and proclaim the message. And when Jesus goes around teaching, he emphasizes certain phrases um, a lot. Uh, the, the idea of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. He announces that. Something called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and so you right. should repent. He, uh, and this is much the same message as, as John the Baptist, mm-hmm. um, but but uh, whereas uh, you know John the Baptist was proclaiming a kingdom of heaven to come, Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is here. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Jesus also went around making statements. Um, that led people to believe that he was the prophesied Messiah. Um, people would ask him about this and he would never deny it and often would um, either uh, directly acknowledge it mm-hmm. or make some very controversial veiled remark as he was right. want to do yeah. uh, and um, and would upset people. Um, you know, he Jesus, for reasons that we can get into a little bit more in a minute, uh, didn't mesh well with uh, people's idea of what the Messiah was supposed to be. Um, it's interesting, though. You're, you're, you're right that uh, he seemed to be um, not so much hesitant to uh, reveal himself, but he did it in um, 
like you said, in veiled ways sometimes. And yeah. sometimes he would just sort of remain silent or he would confirm what they said yeah. rather than speak it out himself. And I think that he he probably understood that, um, you know, had he been more direct about who he was and proclaimed it more loudly, yeah. his death probably came a little sooner than it actually did. Yeah. So he had to do things by a certain time and in a certain way. Right. And, uh, you know... Jesus uh, subverts so many things about the, the, the world that he came into. Um, but the, one of the biggest things is uh, the perception that first century Jews had of what the Messiah would come to do and, mm-hmm. and what his work would be. Um, you know, when the, the word Messiah today, we'll, we'll think of, you know, the word Messiah today is informed by Jesus. So when we hear the word Messiah, we kind of, even without any association with Jesus, mm-hmm. we picture kind of a peaceful, nondescript, wandering, long-haired prophet, uh, you know. Uh, but uh, that's uh, not the image of a Messiah that, that a first century Jew would have had. Right. They would have pictured, you know, a conquering warrior galloping into Jerusalem on a white horse to mm-hmm. retake the the throne uh, from Rome. And uh, so, you know, and there was this idea in Judaism that God had promised to David uh, a kingship uh, that would last forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there were some people in the first century world that interpreted that, I guess we could say non-literally, um, but most people took that very literally. Mm-hmm. They they wanted to see a, a physical Messiah, a God king, come and reign on the throne in Israel to usher in this era of perfect peace and unity. Um, And uh, that was, and Christ makes explicit at several points. That's not what he came here to do. Mm -hmm. There are several points in the gospels where Jesus will explicitly say to people like, I know you guys think that, that I'm here to, to, to overthrow uh, the political order, the, to overthrow Rome basically. Um, But my kingdom isn't of this world or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, even as late as uh, Acts chapter uh, 1, when he had, uh, he had um, the resurrection had occurred and he had reappeared to his, his followers, they believed that it was going to be a, a worldly kingdom. You know, right. Uh, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? Yeah. This concept mm-hmm. is fuzzy even to the apostles. Like, yeah. They understand that he's the Messiah and that he's the Christ and that he's different than what they thought that the Messiah would be, but they still kind of think that at some point 10,000 angels are going to come down from heaven and he's going to march into Jerusalem and, you know, usher in this, you know, utopian society. And uh, Jesus isn't interested in that. Yeah. And, you know, to that end, uh, sometimes I think we might read into um, Jesus and his language that he was uh, more impatient than he was with, with his followers because it seemed like he understood that they aren't going to get this. Yeah. And so, you know, thus the Holy Spirit to help them understand yeah. in Acts chapter 2. But um, I think it was clear to Jesus that as he came up with these concepts and taught them certain things, that they would have to just kind of keep it in their hearts, and then they would understand later on once yeah. they had the proper guidance from the Holy Spirit. Well, and that's one of the cool things about Acts, which we'll talk more about in coming weeks. But you can see it throughout the story of Acts that the apostles— uh, while the gospel is starting to spread and the church is starting to multiply, the apostles themselves, the leaders of the the, the first Christians, um, 
are grappling themselves with what Christ's mm-hmm. resurrection means, with what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, mm-hmm. um, and what that what the implications of that are for everybody else. Um, mm-hmm. For example, particularly going to come up early the Jew Gentile question: uh, right. Is was Christ the Messiah just for the Jews, or was he the Messiah for everyone? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to be a very controversial question almost immediately yeah. once the church begins. Um, but. Uh, yeah, at, at this point, uh, Jesus, pre- during his ministry, preaches uh, almost exclusively to Jewish audiences, predominantly to Jewish audiences. Um, and he certainly was extremely culturally Jewish, extremely um, interested in uh, in keeping the law and in uh, the true meaning of the law as it was originally intended and not necessarily as it had been interpreted down through the centuries by the rabbis. Um so Jesus was not uh, shy uh, uh, about uh, the idea of him himself as the Messiah or, or as, as the Christ. Um, but naturally, anybody that goes around uh, talking about being a Messiah um, is going to be an enemy to the Roman Empire because uh, inherent in this idea of the Messiah is a claim of kingship, right? A claim to this Davidic line, yeah. which is very scary talk. To, to the Romans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so after this uh, roughly three-year ministry, three and a half years, uh, Jesus Jesus's enemies uh, are going to catch up with him. Um, and Jesus has enemies from within Judaism as well as enemies from, from without. Um, but his enemies from within Judaism, particularly um, on the high council, um, are, are going to basically um, orchestrate this. And uh, present him to uh, Pontius Pilate, who was the uh, prefect, which was kind of like a governor of Judea at the time. Um, and uh, even though Pilate uh, first initially in these accounts in the Gospels proclaims that he finds no guilt in Jesus, right. he finds no fault in him, mm-hmm. uh, he seems pretty uh, bewildered, honestly, by by Jesus. Um, uh, but the crowd insists and... Um, Pilate sentences him to death, and he is beaten and tortured and crucified at, at Golgotha. Um, so ancient Rome had uh, – it wasn't – the death penalty in, in ancient Rome was not like today where there are like one and a half ways to, that they'll do it. Mm-hmm. Like there's like one way and then there's like a backup. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rome had many, many ways of killing criminals mm-hmm. and where they were not shy about doing so. Um, but crucifixion was like the top of the heap in terms of um, what was considered culturally at the time the worst way to die. Um, I don't know that – some people tried to make a case that it's it's uh, objectively the most painful method of execution. Uh, I don't know if you can prove that, but it certainly is one of the most humiliating um, and right. um, uh, I think uh, horrifying ways uh, mm-hmm. to die. Um, so the Romans would would reserve crucifixion for extremely heinous, violent offenders or um, uh, very uh, political prisoners who were considered extremely dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, revolutionaries, um, people they wanted to make an example of, right? right? And oftentimes um, they would uh, leave the bodies hanging for days on, on the cross as mm-hmm. kind of a warning and they would often post signs over them. None of this was unusual. Um, But, you know, this man, Jesus, had 
um, many, many followers by the time of his crucifixion. And, and many of them had abandoned him at this point. Uh, he, there is a, a point in Jesus's ministry when he starts, um, it seems, purposefully driving some of his followers away mm-hmm. from him. Uh, and uh, and uh, many of his followers go away because Jesus begins to say really tough things to them right. and require a lot of them. Uh, and um, But the, the, he still has a big following. And so what must these people have thought as the, you know, the man that they thought or, you know, the man they see as their king, you know, mm-hmm. is, is nailed to a cross and, and hung there, um, you know, stripped and beaten and bloody. You know, they had to have been crushed. Yeah. And, and uh, clearly asking questions of themselves because here is a man who is able to uh, perform miracles. Yeah. And yet he couldn't save himself. Right. You know, at least that's, that's what they were seeing at the time. Yeah. Yeah, and you know that's one of the things that that uh, you know, the verbal taunting that Jesus takes while he's being crucified. They say, you know, he's right. saved others, but he can't save himself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, by crucifixion standards, Jesus dies relatively quickly in about six hours, mm-hmm. um, which I suppose is about as merciful as maybe a crucifixion can be. But uh, because there are reports, <laughs> if you read Roman history, of, of days and days right. long crucifixions. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, uh, yeah, the Roman, the, the guards come around to break, uh, you know, Jesus is in the Gospels uh, crucified between uh, two, two criminals. And uh, uh, the, uh, the Jews want to hurry up and get everybody dead because the day of, it's the day of preparation. It's going to be Passover. And they can't have any dead bodies laying around on Passover. Uh, so uh, the guards come around and Jesus is already dead. Um, so he's buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Um, and this is where the story gets especially weird, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Especially, you know, if you're not um, a believer. Because, you know, most historians uh, and scholars on this, even historians and scholars who don't who aren't christians um you know it's it's pretty universally agreed at this point in the year 2020 that jesus was a historical figure who lived um there are still a few crackpots who try to claim that jesus was a myth but most people even skeptical scholars uh agree that jesus in the historical person of jesus um but Everybody has to personally grapple with how they conceive of the resurrection of Jesus because it is a truly amazing thing that the Bible claims. Mm -hmm. Um, So on the third day after Jesus' death, um, something very strange happens. You know, women go to the tomb to anoint the body. As I said, there's this holiday weekend kind of, you can think about it as, of, of the Passover where no work is being done under the law. Um, and then uh, when that is done, early in the morning, these women come to, it seems, finish anointing his body um, with these oils, which would have been um, fragrant oils and sort of an approximation of an embalming process, mm-hmm. um, just something to keep the body from from deteriorating so quickly. Um, and um, when they get there, he is gone. And there's an angel there, uh, which is a strange thing. And the angel tells them uh, good news. He says, uh, he is not here. He's risen, just as he said. And that's in Matthew 28, verse 6. So 
eventually Jesus is going to reveal himself to all of his apostles. Uh, and he's going to ascend to heaven after giving the apostles what, what we call the Great Commission, which is this command to go and baptize all the nations, um, making disciples. Um, basically a, a call for universal evangelism, right? Go to all the world and tell them the good news. So uh, Christians then and Christians now saw this as God's vindication of Jesus, God's uh, victory over death is how Paul is going to describe it. Um, historian Everett Ferguson uh, has a quote that I like that that um, sums it up like this. It confirmed that his death was not simply the death of another good man, but had atoning significance. Uh, these two affirmations, the atoning death of Jesus and the resurrection from the dead, uh, became the two pillars of the Christian faith. Um, so, and... Uh, you know, of course, the idea of the resurrection for the dead for all believers is something that you find throughout um, Paul's letters, and it's something that Jesus uh, talks kind of around during his ministry, mm -hmm. um, and it kind of comes into focus a little bit more later on. Um, but the idea of, of the Messiah rising from the dead on the third day um, is sort of like the ideal that we look forward to, right? There is some sense in which um, our resurrection in the last day, or, uh, uh, you know, is um, an imitation of, of his resurrection or that his resurrection is a type of final resurrection, mm -hmm. uh, or a pattern meant to show us what, what that will be like. Right. So um, it's really cool personally mm -hmm. once, you, once you start studying about the resurrection um, that like the same level of, of glory and um, uh amazing power that uh is bestowed on jesus when he rises mm -hmm. from the dead i can hope for that too yeah um, yeah. yeah you know what too um when you think about it you think about what we were just talking about what it must have looked like to his people you know that here's uh the messiah we're following him and yet he gets put to death yeah. so there's that initial feeling of defeat you know why couldn't he save himself but then if you look at the real overall story Okay, um, he may not have overthrown Rome, but he overthrew death. Right. And that's a little bit bigger right. than Rome. Yeah. And, and to, to, to then think that, okay, we follow that kind of Messiah, I think it helped the people to translate that, okay, well, uh, he overthrew something greater than this world's power. So um, maybe this kingdom isn't of this world. Right. And it sort of leads into that thought process. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and, and he is going, Jesus is going to, you know, you would think that if Jesus raises from the dead and he's going to ascend to heaven, uh, he's got to have his apostles uh, begin his kingdom. Mm -hmm. You'd think he might like, you know, write them a manual or like give them like detailed instructions, but he doesn't. He just says, go to Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. to come. It'll tell you what you, sh what you should do. And until then, just know you're going to go and you're going to baptize people of all nations. Right. And, uh, he just gives them the Great Commission and then ascends to heaven. So that's what the apostles do. They wait in Jerusalem um, for the Holy Spirit. And um, the Holy Spirit comes 40 days after Jesus' Jesus's ascension um, on the day of Pentecost. Um, and we consider the, the day of Pentecost that we see in Acts chapter 2. Um, the proper beginning of the church, I guess you would say, the first gospel sermon preached, the first, um, you know, mass baptism. You know. Right.
and uh, we and you have a miraculous event: the Holy Spirit coming on the apostles and allowing them to speak in um, dozens of different languages to the to the crowds assembled there. Um, so there's not. I'm setting up a little bit for what we're going to talk about next week. Now, um, there's not. A, a, a clean break from Judaism initially. This is a little bit complicated. Uh, and the church starts in, in Jerusalem. That's where it's proclaimed at Pentecost. Um, and, you know, especially in, in the Jerusalem church, uh, there's a lot of indications that we have, we have continued, you know, Jewish modes of, of uh, religious practice, life, worship, diet. Um, and, the earliest Christians would have probably viewed themselves not so much. I mean, we don't even hear the term Christians until kind of the middle of Acts, right? Mm-hmm. That's when they're first called Christians right. at Antioch. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but that's not until Christianity had spread out a little bit. Um, so these er- for earliest Christians would have probably considered themselves, you know, Jews above anything else. Um, but they they are Jews who held the unpopular opinion that Jesus uh, was, uh, Jesus had been and was the, the foretold Messiah. Um, so even though there was no clean break uh, right away, um, it's not going to be long until uh, there's conflict uh, over the Jewish nature of the church, both from mm-hmm. Jewish authorities not wanting anything to do with these Christians in very short short amount of time, and also, uh, eventually, Christians are not going to want to have much to do with Judaism either, unfortunately. So there's going to be strife going both ways probably by the end of the first century. Um, and uh, so Jewish authorities, uh, you know, in the middle part of the first century start explicitly forbidding, you know, any teaching uh, in the name of Jesus in the local synagogues. And you see that in Acts as well. Um and so that that tension that's already there gets complicated uh, in, I believe, Acts chapter 10, if I'm not mistaken, where Peter baptizes the first Gentile convert, mm-hmm. Cornelius, which is very controversial at the time. Um, so over the first several centuries of the church, um, there's going to be this process of sep- the church separating itself from Judaism that's going to happen. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be a slow and painful process in a lot of ways. Uh, you just know that, uh, you know, uh, when we talk about the early church being predominantly Jewish, within that there are different subgroups, right? So there are very law-observant Jews. There are not-so-law-observant Jews that convert. There are Gentile proselytes that convert to Christ. Uh, and then there are what they would call Hellenized Jews or culturally Greek Jews uh, who would convert as well. So uh, Hellenized Jews may or may not practice uh, Torah um, and may or may not speak Hebrew and are were generally um, less serious about preserving the culture, um, less conservative. Um, but a lot of them would convert as well. Um, Stephen in Acts is, is a Hellenized Jew. Um, so uh, there were people from all kinds of, of backgrounds uh, within Judaism, and then eventually in Acts we start seeing uh, Gentiles, you know, Greeks and people from different non-Jewish ethnicities converting. Um, 
so but you're going to get conflict between two rough camps right the hebrews and hellenists so um you know you can think about this as uh people who want to make um binding law observance part of daily christian practice and people who leave it up to the the personal conscience of of the individual uh so the the ones who are serious about keeping the hebrew heritage would uh are the people who paul will call judaizers uh who want to insist on circumcision who want to you know insist uh on the dietary rules and um keeping keeping all the commands uh, whereas hellenists will say essentially uh the more hellenized jews will will say um if you wish to keep the law uh no one will stop you but we don't impose the law on anyone either because we're not saved by the law right um, and this that's the argument, basically a simplified version of the argument that Paul makes in all of his letters, is that mm-hmm. we're not saved by the law, we're saved through Christ, so um, stop trusting in, in the law to save you when it's, when it's Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so that's enough early stuff. Next week, I think we're going to talk, uh, just get an overview of the life of Paul of Tarsus, because after Jesus in the first century, um, Paul of Tarsus is probably the second most dominant figure in terms of shaping the direction of uh, the development of Christianity. Um, and uh, he is kind of a, an example of God putting the perfect person in the, per, in the perfect place at the perfect time mm-hmm. to do exactly what needed to be done. Um, things look different if you take Paul out of the picture uh, right. in the first century. Um, I'm not going to say that I don't think Christianity wouldn't have still spread, but it definitely would not have spread as quickly um, uh, as it as it did with with the, the help of Paul's particular talents and mm-hmm. a lot of God's help as well. Yeah, it's interesting too because I, you know, when you think about it, part of the reason why it spread so far uh, through him, a lot of it could do with the fact that he was on the run a lot. Yeah, you know, from. From uh, probably, well, definitely the the Jews who he had served so faithfully before, who he had now turned against. But also, you know, he probably had a little bit of a tough time settling down with some Christians who, yeah. you know, who knew him for who he was. Yeah. So he probably couldn't really get comfortable anywhere uh, for a very long time. Yeah. And, and the Lord, of course, sent him, sent him about, but he was a perfect, like you said, he was a perfect person at the perfect time to yeah. do what he did. And because of it, and we'll get into this next week, but because of his past, he spends a lot of the time in his letters, even late on into his career, defending himself and, right. uh, uh, you know, reassuring Christians that he's really on their side, mm-hmm. uh, which gets called into doubt quite a bit, it seems. Mm-hmm. Um, you think. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and, and that's a pattern we're going to see, too, not just with Paul, but with, in other places where when persecution gets hot in, a, in one particular area— it actually exacerbates the spread right. of the gospel because people, I mean, Jesus told the apostles and, and people take this as, you know, as his command, when people reject you, go on to the next city. Right. And so that's what people do when they start getting persecuted. Mm-hmm. They just move to a different area and uh, the Christian communities start popping up everywhere. Yeah. So, um, cool. I think that's enough for today. We, we bit off a nice good chunk there. Uh, right. Next week we'll talk about Paul and, all his wild journeys. So, cool. Until next time. Until next time. Mm